Amen. Thank you, Larry. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. That's three years old through the fifth grade can make their way upstairs and leaders will be waiting in the lobby. Um, and if you've checked your kids in, just send them out. If you haven't, go with them to make sure you check them into our kids ministry. And for the rest of you, thank you for being here for worship uh, this morning as we celebrate our risen Savior together, as we um, worship through song and through prayer, and also as we dive into the Word together to hear from Him. A few things you need to know about the life of the church right now. We will have uh, tonight, our youth ministry and Awana ministry will be meeting for parents of Awana kids. That is a night, a special night that you're invited to where they will be decorating pumpkins between our, our buildings here. And so parents, if you don't have details about that, check your email or talk to uh, Rika, our shepherd, or Rika Shepherd, our kids ministry director. Rika, our shepherd of kids, whose last name is Shepherd and is our kids ministry director. Sorry. Um, talk to Rika Shepherd after the service if you have any questions about that. Uh, youth starts at 5.30. Awana starts at 6. Um, also, um, in just a couple of weeks, we will have a yard sale benefiting the Moyer family as they uh, seek to purchase, and we help them purchase a um, wheelchair accessible uh, van for their son, Joshua. And there is a whole bunch of stuff back there right now. And um, we need some help in organizing, sorting, pricing, that sort of thing. We need some help in uh, bringing more stuff because we want even more than what we have right now. Um, we also want some help in somebody purchasing that stuff because that's sort of the like main goal is fundraising. Um, but that is Saturday, November 6th, and we will need some help um, over the next couple weeks just getting things organized. We're going to start moving stuff out into the gym this week. And uh, so if you have more stuff to bring, we would love it if you would bring it this week and not next week. The more stuff we have ahead of time is good. We sort of ran out of space the last couple of weeks. We didn't, we didn't have much more space to put anything, but now we're good this week. Let us know when you want to bring it by, and, uh, and we can help you unload or get organized, that, that sort of thing. Um, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. We'll start in verse 49 here. And this is Jesus talking about trial. Uh, Jesus is fully prepared for the fact that his followers will experience trouble, will experience trial and hardship of various kinds. He predicts it and he seeks to prepare his people for it. For, so for today, uh, that's our goal, is to prepare for the trials that we face. So put yourself into the mind of a first century disciple, a first century follower of Jesus. And think about what you know about a year and a half, two years into following Jesus, you've heard a lot, you've seen a lot. You've seen miracles, you've seen uh, him feed great groups of people, you've seen him heal people, you've seen him cast demons out, you've heard him say controversial things, you've heard him say hard things, you've heard him say really good things, you've heard him interpret the law and scriptures in a way you've never heard interpret, interpreted before. And now, you're sitting and you're listening to Jesus and he asks you a question. And he says, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? What's the answer? Most of us would intuitively think, well, sure, Jesus. Isn't that the angel song? Isn't that what we sing about at Christmas? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. But Jesus in Luke 12, verse 51, asks that very question. 
of his followers. Do you think I have come to bring peace on earth? And he shatters their expectations again with the answer, no. And Jesus then says, I've not come to bring peace, but division. He promises his closest followers, you can follow me closely. You can seek after me with your whole heart. You can seek after me fully and deny everything else. And if you do that, you will experience division in this life. That's the promise that he gives us. So today in this passage, we're going to go through the end of chapter 12 and into the beginning of chapter 13. And we're going to see five different trials that Jesus predicts that are not really hard for us to apply and say, yeah, been there. I've experienced that. And so we're going to look first at the end of 12, and we're going to see the trial of division, of ignorance, of dispute. And then in the beginning of 13, we're going to see suffering and fruitlessness on display. So we'll pick up with division in verse 49 of Luke chapter 12. I came to cast fire on the earth. Would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? There's the question. No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And there it is. There's the passage. It's not the happiest passage in all of Scripture. It's not the most encouraging. But it is a true statement from Jesus that is predictive and preparatory for us. Because if we're all honest, We feel this at a deep level, right? You've been there. You've experienced division. In fact, we could even say, particularly within our day, we live in a particularly divisive period of time, season of culture and society. And therefore, if you didn't know what this was like a few years ago, you probably know now. And probably many of the relational divisions that you are experiencing have been Recent relational divisions, complicated by the cares and concerns, the the different crises we face as, as society over the last couple of years. And Jesus is actually excited about this. Look at what he's saying. This is a very, a very important passage for us to approach humbly and carefully. Because we know that Philippians 4, 7 says that if you present your request to God, I think I might have quoted this last week. If not, it was two weeks ago. If you present your request to God, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds of Christ Jesus. Does God bring peace? Yes. Uh, Colossians 3.15 says the peace of Christ can actually rule our hearts. Does Christ bring peace? Yes. But first, he brings division. And so we have to understand this passage in the context of the whole of Scripture, that the the Messiah, the Savior that is born, and as we go into the Advent season, we're going to be talking about peace on earth that Messiah is bringing. We know that to be true. But with peace with God comes division with other people. That's what Jesus is saying. If you want to experience peace, true shalom in this life, that is peace with God. But if you want to experience peace with people, then you've got to suffer through a little bit of division along the way. Jesus in verse 49 says he is excited about this coming reality. 
I came to cast fire on this earth and would that it were already kindled. How great is my distress, he later says, until this happens. Jesus is eager for the fire to fall. Jesus is eager for, in verse 50, the baptism to be experienced. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now, what is Jesus' baptism that he's talking about here? Uh, We know that at the Jordan River, long before this, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus was literally dunked into the water, raised out of the water by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit descended as a dove. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is not the baptism that Jesus is talking about. Uh, Jesus is talking about uh, something else. And understanding that is kind of key to unlocking what the truth of this passage is. Uh, The word baptism is important here. Because every time we see the word baptism, we think water. And we think dunking somebody into the water and bringing them out of the water. And maybe you think sprinkling somebody with water. But the word baptism means immersion. And so we, we have to look at this passage and see the word baptism as maybe referring to something that isn't explicitly about water in verse 50 and 51. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Literally, the translation would be, I have an immersion to be immersed with. Or I have a saturation to be saturated with. I have an overcoming event that is going to overcome me. And what Jesus is stepping into, that he is hopeful for, is this great purpose that he longs to accomplish on this earth. So let me ask another question, the key to unlocking unlocking this passage. What is Jesus' purpose in coming to this earth? To live a perfect life to suffer, to die, to be raised again from the dead, and so to achieve victory for us over our sins and new life for us. And so what I believe he is saying here, I don't think he's literally talking about being baptized in water in verse 50. I think he's talking about being immersed in the great suffering of the cross, that he is going to endure suffering on our behalf, And that is the great immersion that he is stepping into. He is being immersed into the consequences of the sins that we have committed. And then because of that, because he is immersed in the consequences of those sins, he takes our penalty for us. He is our substitute so that we might have life. And the great fire that is to be cast on the earth that he's so excited about. I can't wait till this fire is kindled in verse 49. The great fire is the coming of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes beginning in Pentecost and comes to believers from then on. Uh, And think about what happened at Pentecost. It was a glorious event, but it was a glorious event that, that followed an event of great suffering. Jesus was first immersed in suffering at the cross, experiencing death at the cross, and then he was raised to newness of life. He overcame, the victor- he overcame the death, the grave, and sin at the cross so that he might achieve victory in life for us. And then the Holy Spirit fell and came the baptism with fire. And then came great division. Think about Pentecost and how exciting it would have been to, that, uh, to be there on that day, to see thousands of people added to the body of Christ in Acts 2. Think about the, the beauty. We, we as a church 
all churches often look back on that season and say, boy, what would it be like to experience another day like Pentecost, to see the Spirit falling like that, to see people coming and believing in Jesus, that many people in one day. And then you look and you sort of romanticize the beauty of the end of Acts 2, where it said they shared things in common, and they met regularly together, breaking bread in homes, devoting themselves to, to singing and to the fellowship of the Word and to, to just fellowship together and to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. You see that beauty in Acts chapter 2, but do not lose, lose sight of the fact that immediately after Acts chapter 2 came a whole lot of division. And I mean a lot. And a lot of suffering for Christ's people. Pentecost made it look like everything is good. We have one. And there had to be people that were thinking on that day, boy, this life of following Jesus, this is exactly what I want. This is going to be easy. Look at how clearly God is displaying his power today. And it was only a few days or weeks before Stephen was killed. And then people dispersed from Jerusalem all throughout. And it was the great persecution that came on the earliest followers of Jesus in Jerusalem that led to the spread of them going out into other communities. Uh, Paul, before he was named Paul, he was known as Saul and was devoting his life to persecuting the church then. There was great division of people that decided they were going to follow Jesus, that were born again by the Spirit and sold out in a life of obedience to him. What happened the relationships they once had with those that were not following Jesus were completely severed. And people that were once their neighbors were now persecuting them. People that were once their family, that were once their friends, were now against them. And this is the prediction of Jesus and the promise of Jesus for all those that would follow Jesus from that point. That we are baptized into Jesus' death we are, so the picture of baptism is this. When, when I stand with somebody to be baptized, I descend them into the water to be, rep, to, be, um, to be united with Christ. The symbol, the picture of being united with Christ in his death and then being raised to newness of life with Christ in his life. That you are one with Christ, that Jesus' union with you has brought about new life for you. And with that comes the filling of the Holy Spirit that empowers you from that point. There's great beauty there. There is great power there. But division comes. Because when Jesus lights you on fire with the Spirit of God and fills you with the fire and the power of the Spirit of God, he burns up the connections to lesser things. That's what fire does. It refines. It purifies and it also burns up certain connections that we once had. And so in order for Jesus to bring peace with God, peace between God and man, some things need to be lit up with fire and light. And some connections need to be broken for the sake of sure and steadfast obedience to Christ. And so the light of Christ lights us up in relationships that were going in the same way when both people were following the ways of the world are now divided because people are going different directions. One follows Christ and one follows the world. And as those positions become equally opposite, so comes the difficulty and the division. Now, one of the things we do in this country because we have historically accepted Christianity well throughout the history of our culture and society, sometimes in our evangelism, 
we go with a really low bar. And we say, look guys, it's super easy. All you got to do is just believe. Just believe in Jesus. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to believe. And let me tell you something. Somebody that is following another religion knows it's not that easy. And sometimes we, we, we make the bar so low for people that we're actually uh, misrepresenting what the gospel does, misrepresenting what Christ does. Because if you come to somebody that is practicing another religion and you say, it's, it's okay, all you got to do is just believe, then they say, well, what about my family that's going to throw me out? What about my, my career that's going to be lost by this decision to live this lifestyle? What about all these relationships I've had throughout my life that are now going to reject me because of the t- decision I'm making? It doesn't feel like to that person it's an act of, well, just believe, and it's super simple. And so don't get me wrong. The gospel of Jesus Christ is simple, but the implications of the life change are it's incredibly complicated. And so to say, just believe, yeah, 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 we want to preach the gospel to people that says, accept Jesus, accept him as your savior, recognize your sin, accept his sacrifice on your behalf, come to him and follow him. And the believing part, boy, that is actually the the simple step. But living in belief in Jesus every day and following him, that is dramatically more complicated because it means you are going an opposite direction from the way you were going before. It means you are leaving behind a way of life. Whether, and, if you're, and maybe because you are following the way of the world and not following a false god or another religion, maybe your friends and family won't notice it as much. But you know what? That might actually should concern you. If, if for somebody that grew up in a Muslim or a Hindu context and household is saying, no, you, you don't understand. I, I need to make sure because if I make this decision to follow Jesus. I'm throwing away every relationship I have. I will literally be divided against my family, against my friends. I may lose my income. I may lose my standing in my society if I make this decision. But see, here, we don't have that kind of weight to the decision we make. We tack on Jesus to the way we're already going. And we make a a minor course correction, maybe, to still have the same passions, have the same priorities, have the same things that we care deeply about, but just have a little bit of Jesus' influence in that. That's not the way of following Jesus. The way of following Jesus is to reject the way you were going before and go a fully new path. And so, yeah, division comes. So what this passage is about, the division that Jesus is talking about, is to say, in order to be made at peace with God, you gotta be cut off from some of your relationships with the world. Peace is coming, but you don't want empty peace with other people. You want peace with the eternal God that is the righteous judge. And in order to achieve peace with God, to be reconciled to God, you've got to be cut off from the ways of the world and therefore people that are following the ways of the world. So that's the division he's talking about. But I'm actually going to take a a little bit, uh, I'm going to diverge from the passage a little bit to talk about something else. Because I think in our day and age, we're experiencing division of another type that's not explicitly said in this passage, at least not in the same way. Uh, Because each one of us can probably look to some relationships in our lives and say, yeah, when I decided to follow Christ, 
there's this other family member that's not following Christ. There's a friend, there's a coworker that's not following Christ, and we therefore don't have much in common because I'm following Christ and he's not. That's the division this passage is talking about. But the division that hurts us more right now is the fact that we have plenty of examples of two Christians that are divided. And, and they're both naming the name of Jesus, both following Jesus, but other issues have gotten in the way to where Christians now that were once going the same path in pursuit of Christ together, following scripture together, have now reached a point of division within their relationship. And so it's easy for us to see what, what, what Jesus is talking about here and say, yes, we're going to be divided from relationships with the world because we're pursuing different things. But Jesus, why in the world is it so hard to live at peace with other Christians? Why in the world is it so hard to see that oneness that the Spirit brings together to believers in Jesus to make us one. That's not necessarily predicted in Scripture in the same way that um, Jesus predicts division with the world. But I will say there is the division between Christians anticipated in Scripture and described in Scripture. And that also happens in Acts. You know, I, I said... You look at Acts 2, you think, man, you close Acts 2 and you think, this is awesome, this is going to be great. And then you see the rest of the book of Acts unfold with an incredible degree of power that's really cool to watch, but also an incredible degree of suffering and division that Christians are facing. And one of the most painful episodes is with Paul and this guy named Barnabas. And I probably talk about it more than I do most stories in Scripture like that because I think it's so real. And I think I told somebody this week, Barnabas has always been one of my favorite characters in Scripture. Because there's something that we learn from the story of Barnabas that is so unique in Scripture. It's so painful and it's so beautiful. Because here's who Barnabas was. Barnabas, you may have forgotten, he was Paul's mentor. Maybe you never knew that. Maybe you never knew that when Paul had the dramatic Damascus Road experience, he didn't immediately go preaching the gospel. He, he immediately went to this guy named Ananias. And then Paul sort of went into this period of, of laying low as a Christian. His first missionary journey was 13 years after Damascus. Why? Because everybody knew him as a persecutor of the church. But there's this guy named Barnabas who went to find Paul, is what Luke says in Acts. Barnabas went to find him, and then Barnabas is the one that brought him to the disciples. Barnabas was the guy that was renamed by the earliest disciples. His name used to be Joseph, but then Joseph became such an encourager and an uplifter of other believers that they renamed him, and the word Barnabas means son of encouragement. Joseph was what he was named. Barnabas was who he became in his discipleship of Jesus. And as he was following Jesus, he became such an encourager of other people. He saw something in Paul that Jesus' closest followers, the 11 apostles in Jerusalem, did not see. So it took Barnabas going to get Paul, bringing him to the apostles and saying, hey, we can trust this guy. We can walk with this guy. Well, then, years later, after the first missionary journey, preparing for the second missionary journey, Barnabas said, we're going to give this guy, John Mark, a second chance. John Mark was on the first missionary journey. He deserted them in the middle of a mission trip. Paul said, preparing for the second journey, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice. No, or fool me once, I don't even know how to say that. <laughs> Paul said, he ain't going. That was a much more simple sentence. Paul said, he ain't going with us again. He doesn't get a second chance. He quit on us. He left us. Barnabas, he's staying home. 
Barnabas said, no, no, no. We're going to give him a second chance. Luke says it exactly like this. The dispute arose so sharply between Paul and Barnabas that they had to split ways. It's the first church split. Two believers, empowered by Christ, knew the gospel of Jesus Christ with great clarity and presented it, literally had given their lives to the presentation of the gospel under the filling and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Could not agree about this young guy, Mark, who had messed up, who had gotten cold feet and quit. Barnabas thought he needed a second chance. Paul said he didn't. They literally went opposite directions. Barnabas and Mark went that way. Paul and Silas went that way. And they both, they both visited churches. They both encouraged churches. They both taught. They both preached the gospel and taught the scriptures. And it was maybe 20 years later that Paul wrote to Timothy, another young guy, that Timothy, Timothy was, became Paul's son in the faith and one of Paul's last recorded words in the scriptures that he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote to Timothy, bring John Mark with you when you come to see me. And why did he say that? Because John Mark is useful to me. He was useless, Mark was, in Paul's eyes. Maybe 20 years earlier, maybe 15 years earlier, I don't know. But however much time had passed, Mark had, in the intervening periods, literally written the Gospel of Mark, written a book of the Bible, traveled with Barnabas throughout the Mediterranean, encouraging other churches. The story of Barnabas and John Mark is one of my favorites for a reason. Mark was a failure who was redeemed, given a second chance. Barnabas was the guy that was in the front lines at, the, at one time, and he took a step back and he let Paul lead. And he let Paul be the one that was inspired by the Spirit to, to write 13 books of the Bible. And you know, there's a gospel of Barnabas out there. It, he didn't actually write it. That's fake. Barnabas didn't write any of the books of the Bible. He fell into the background as an encourager. And you know what Luke doesn't do? Luke doesn't analyze who was right or wrong. Luke just says this happens. This is what happened. Two believers in Jesus. And here's the promise of this story in Scripture for us. When believers in Christ are divided against each other, God still has a plan. And God still knows what he's doing. And the story of Paul, Barnabas, John, Mark, Silas, Timothy, all of those people were involved in this, in this debacle of this man Paul and this man Barnabas who just couldn't get on the same page. And what it shows us is that God has a plan even in the midst of our failures and even in the midst of our divisions. So back to Luke chapter 12, it says nothing about Christians dividing against other Christians. But because we know it happens, and because every Christian I've talked to over the last two years and asked, hey, how are your relationships going? Everybody has a relationship that is in a worse spot than it was two years ago. And whether we blame COVID or we blame politics or we blame whatever societal issue of the day, there's plenty of things that are working to divide us today. And we're all hurting with somebody that we love that has now separated from us. And the truth of the gospel says, you know what? If you're being separated from people that are following the world, that's just an example of God's grace working in you. So don't dismay. Live in discipleship of Christ Pray for that person, seek the good and the peace and the well-being of that person, but recognize you're never going to be on the same page if you're serving different masters, if you're serving different gods. But when you divide with another Christian, don't think that that surprises him. 
Don't think that that surprises Jesus either. He's with you in that trial, and he is working to enact his will in surprising ways. Okay, uh, that's only point one, guys. Point number two, ignorance. Verse 54. Jesus said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and so it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? He says, you fools, you hypocrites, you know the weather better than you know the culture. You're better meteorologists than you are theologians. You, you know what's going on in the, you know how to predict the wind and the rain and the heat, but you don't know what's going on around you. And so we as Christians, we are called to be students of our culture. We're called to be students of the societal moment in which we live. We're called to, to, to learn and study how to present the gospel, first and foremost. How to live lives transformed by the power of Christ and the presence of the Spirit, and how to present the gospel of hope, peace, and joy into the, the moment in which we are in. And so what we need to know most about our society is where our society needs the gospel most. What we need to know most about our society is how the hope of Christ, the reconciliation, remember we've talked about peace a lot today, right? Jesus said, I'm not here to bring peace, but division, and yet we know that Jesus does bring peace, and we know that in presenting the gospel to other people, that is the moment, that the moment in which we are living in is a moment that is crying out for hope and crying out for peace. And we're called to be ministers of reconciliation, Bringing people into reconciliation with God. Bringing people to peace with God. And so what does that mean? That means we preach the message of peace. That with everything crazy going on all around you, that you can have peace with God. And with all of the divisions going on all around you, you, think about it. Think about the person that you love that you are divided from right now. And think about how, how great the news is that there is one person that has loved you so dearly that even when you did everything against him, even when you rejected him and sinned against him and lived in disobedience to him, he gave his very life so that he might have peace with you. He was the one that acted in reconciliation for you. How great of news is that? That with all of these other people that let us down, all of these other things that let us down, we have hope in Christ. We don't hope in other people. We don't even hope in our families or in our closest friends because we have hope in Christ that clearly outshadows and outshines any of that. And so whatever unity we have with other people is established through unity with Christ. Some of us are called to, to, di to dive deep into the weathered patterns of culture and society and to learn more and more about what is happening within worldviews and cultures of our day some of us are called to, to dig deep, and I think, I hope that some of you in this room are called to that and are pursuing that. But as much as we are, we are called as a body to dig deep on some issues, to walk wisely as a church, as a, as a church family, as a Christian community through the issues of our day, we also are all called to go deeper into devotion, to go deeper into devotion in the word of God and prayer and in the Christian community. Because not every one of us is called to answer every single political issue 
Not every one of us is called to answer every single apologetic issue. Not every one of us is called to dismantle every, every current worldview trend that is destructive to the gospel. But every one of us is called to know and understand the hope of the gospel within us, of what Christ has done in us, and how it applies not only to us, but also to those around us. And so the weather, weather pattern we need to know most is that we live in a world that is without hope and peace and needs the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring about reconciliation between God and man and to bring about the hope of eternity. And so let's all go deeper into devotion and not live in ignorance of the great need of society, people all around us perishing without Jesus. Challenge number three, trial number three is disputes. Verse 57, why do you judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you into prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now, I don't think I need to go really deep into historical cultural analysis to build a bridge to say that if Jesus was concerned about spurious lawsuits in the first century, we're in a way more complicated place of spurious lawsuits in 2021. The court system in the first century was nothing nearly as complex as what we live with now. And so if Jesus is concerned about fighting battles in public spaces in front of secular courts, then we as followers of Christ should be concerned about that in our day and age. Now, I will say there's a difference. There's actually a positive difference between the first century and today. And that when Jesus, or when Paul in 1 Corinthians tells believers not to take other believers to court, I believe that's a true passage that we still should not, as Christians, take other Christians to court on issues that could be settled interpersonally within the church. However, one of the things that Jesus says, or that Paul says after that, is he says that the courts are, are godless and, and pagan and et cetera. And praise God that we live in a moment in history and society in which we have Christians that are working within the courts, Christian legal professionals as, as attorneys, as judges, as lawmakers that are seeking to fight for and enact just, just laws and moral laws. And so let's, let's get that right to say what Jesus is not saying is that Christians should be anti-lawyer, anti-judge, anti-legal system. No, we actually live in an incredible moment in history that we need to continue to fight for where we can, as Christians, have a, have a say into lawmaking procedures and into the, the operation of the government and the legal system. So let's do that. But also recognize that sometimes these legal disputes that we get ourselves into are focused on worshiping and seeking the wrong thing. And so some of these disputes are based on protection of our own reputation, protection of our own finances, or getting even on somebody that has wronged us. And I think that is what, Je what Jesus is talking about here. You go with your accuser to justify yourself. You could have settled with him along the way and therefore avoided the public embarrassment of when you are actually found guilty. And so Christians, what Jesus is saying here, uh, followers of Jesus do not obsess over their own re reputations, over their own standing in society, over their own finances. We worship Christ as our treasure, as citizens of his kingdom, focused on the expansion of his kingdom and not our own personal kingdoms. 
And I think that's the sort of legal dispute he is warning us against in this passage. Do not pursue frivolous lawsuits based on your own reputation so that you can be the just one and you can take it to your accuser. But rather, in humility, seek to settle through the church, through humility, recognizing that um, you don't have to protect your reputation as a believer in Christ. You don't have to protect your standing when Jesus has declared you as eternally righteous in his, before his throne. Uh, trial number four is suffering. And Jesus um, <clears throat> is encountered with this story of great suffering from Galileans, from, from people who were his brothers, sisters, and cousins, essentially. Verse 1 of chapter 13 says it like this. There were some present as Jesus was talking who told Jesus about the Galileans. Now, Galileans were, were Jews. These were, not, these were not pagans that were worshiping false gods. These were other Jews that were seeking Yahweh through the law. Um, they told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the, tire of Sil- uh, the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So two contemporary crises of his day are on display here. One, Galileans who were killed by Pilate while offering sacrifices. Two, the Tower of Siloam, which in construction fell and killed 18 people. And he is saying two things here. The the first is simple, that we should repent and follow God because regardless of what those Galileans were doing or those that, that had the tower, the tower of Siloam fall on them, what he is saying clearly is that they were sinners and they died and we will die. And what we first and foremost need to be worried about is whether we have repented of our sin and followed Christ. That, that's point number one, that suffering comes to all men. And some of the suffering is a result of sin. And so as suffering comes, make sure you are living in a state of repentance and in clear communion with God. Give yourself to Christ for salvation. Let the Spirit of God uh, renew you so that you are one with Christ and that if you suffer, then it's not suffering and punishment for your sin, but it's suffering that may deliver you into the presence of God. So first, those who rebel against God suffer and suffer in punishment. But second... Those who follow God also suffer. Those who follow God also have towers fall on them. Those who follow God are often also martyred. But Christ is with them in the midst of it. Last week came the news that 17 missionaries in Haiti were kidnapped. 17 missionaries from the U.S. and from Canada were kidnapped en route to the construction of an orphanage in Haiti. And now they're being held hostage and different groups are working to help. But think of the, the state of those missionaries and the suffering that they are enduring in this time. As they, It was, I think, last Saturday, maybe, or last Friday. Maybe I'm a week off. But it's been at least a week since they have been in captivity. Uh, we know of a missionary that we have um, connection to in West Africa that has been in captivity for a lot longer than that. 
And as we remember to pray for Ken Elliott occasionally, we, we remember it's been now over three years that he has been in captivity, that he has been suffering. And it's true of, of followers of Jesus all over the world. Uh, just this year, we've seen news coverage of what happened in Afghanistan and the great, um, the great crisis of that. And we saw that now, those that have come to Christ and, and been following Christ over the last 20 years, now there are churches all over Afghanistan that have gone back into hiding. Believers in Christ, followers of Jesus that are back suffering. And, you know, we have an opportunity. We really do. You think, well, what do I do about suffering? What do I do about those around the world that suffer? We cannot alleviate every aspect of suffering all over the world. And so sometimes what happens is we are inundated with suffering globally, and we think, I don't know what I can do to help it, so we just sort of shut it off. We get so overwhelmed by the extent of it that we think, I don't know what I could do to help. When really the answer, as is the answer to to, to many things in ministry is to just start with one. To just start with one suffering person that you can help. To start with one missionary couple that is working amongst those that are being persecuted and see how you can help, pray, support. To work with one refugee family that has fled out of one of those um, societies of great oppression and great, um, great violence One of the greatest ministries we have going on through families in our church right now is those that are ministering to refugees locally. There are opportunities there. There are people coming, there are Muslims coming to Christ in our area because of the work of Americans that are just sitting there and sharing the gospel and and talking about Jesus. And it's happening. And you know, they need help. There are people in our congregation doing this that need help right now. And there are more of us that could take a part and, and, and partner with that. So yeah, there's more we can do to help others in suffering, but what about when we suffer? Because uh, Jesus says, in this life you will have tribulation, take heart, I've overcome the world. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, everyone who, li- who longs to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, you will suffer in this life. You know that? Probably because you already have. You've already faced something. You have something in your mind right now that you're agonizing over or that you're dealing with. And it would be very unloving of me or of any pastor or of a church to say, well, if you would just pray more, if you would just read scripture more, if you would just trust God more, he would alleviate those things. No, no, no. The loving thing to do is to tell you what Jesus told you, that you will suffer, you will experience pain, but in the midst of the pain, he's not going to forget about you. That the king who suffered on your behalf is going to now, what Hebrew says, sympathize. And in fact, the Greek word sympathize says he suffers with you as you suffer. The word sympathize is to suffer with. And so the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, who suffered on your behalf so that you might have life, now as you endure whatever suffering is in your life, he is with you in it. He has not forgotten you. And so what we have to do as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to prepare each other for the inevitability of suffering, the inevitability of pain and tribulation and trial. That's the whole passage. You will face these trials. You will face division. You will face face disputes. You will face ignorance. You will face suffering. And finally, you will face fruitlessness. Verse 6, Jesus told this parable. 
A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, "Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this tree, and I find nothing. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground?" And the vine dresser, the gardener, answered him, "Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure." And then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now, it's an interesting story because Jesus gives no interpretation of what he means by this. But we know enough about Jesus and about Scripture to gain some understanding of the point that he's getting out. In context, he's preparing us for various trials of different kinds. And here comes the trial of what happens when you're a tree that doesn't bear fruit. Or what happens when there's a tree around you that doesn't bear fruit. What do you do? He is telling us that some followers of Jesus will face this season of fruitlessness. But then he's also saying that we cannot give up too soon on the fruitless tree. You know, one of our members that was in the early service this morning, which by the way is awesome and you should go to the early service and we're gonna keep doing that at least for the month of October. Um, but no offense to you guys, the early service is my favorite. I tell them every Sunday. I only tell you that occasionally because I don't wanna offend you. But the early service outside this morning, um, in sharing this story, somebody came up to me afterwards and said, hey, I had a friend that planted a plum tree, had the same kind of deal. And he literally started talking to the tree. I started talking to the tree and said, hey, you get one more year. I'm going to do this, this, and this. He basically did this. He, he fertilized it. He dug around it. He, he was careful. He talked to the tree. And then all of a sudden, the tree started bearing more fruit. And he said, I, I don't have a good explanation, but, but the tree went through this great season of fruitlessness. And then I did some work around it. I gave it a, har a harsh talking to. And then all of a sudden, the tree started bearing fruit again. I'm not sure that's the right application for us and I just give you a harsh talking to and you leave a season of fruitlessness and then you go to bear fruit. But the reality of it is, we, as Christians, we are compared to the tree here. Followers of Jesus are the fig tree. And the, the point that Jesus is making here is that sometimes those that seek to follow him will go through these great periods where they are bearing no fruit. And sometimes those that outwardly name the name of Jesus will be cut off. Because the lack of fruit being born is evidence of the lack of the life of Christ within them. But for us, I think that the, the application here for us is what happens when I examine my own life, when I examine my own spiritual state, and I don't see the fruit that I think I should see. Then let's make a decision on where you are with Christ and what your next step with Christ is going to be. Because let's say... You have, you once had, and I think this is probably true of all of us, early on in your following of Jesus, you once had big dreams for what you would do to change the world for Christ, for what you would do to reach people, evangelize people, disciple people, serve people. You once had big dreams about what Christ could do through you, and you thought, I'm going to be all in for Jesus. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And then the cares and concerns of this life have come in and have distracted you. The, the different challenges of this passage, division, ignorance, dispute, suffering, those things have come in and they've distracted you from accomplishing what you thought God was going to do through you. So now you look back and you say, what have I really done for Jesus? How has the kingdom of God really expanded and been built through my ministry, through my following of Jesus? 
What did you think that you would accomplish after 20 years, 30 years, 50 years of following Jesus? And what has been accomplished through you? Do you have unrealized dreams of following Jesus in evangelism, discipleship, personal character? I think it's okay to ask that question and to kind of dive in at the soul level and say, okay, Jesus, maybe right now I don't see the fruit that I want to see in my life. Will you go with me? Jesus, will you go with me deeper as I seek to live in greater obedience to you, greater application of your truth and living in light of all that you have revealed to me? Uh, What if, what if in the Christian community, we all just said, okay, forgetting what lies behind, forgetting the fruitlessness of the past, forgetting the distractions of the past, but pressing on toward what lies ahead. I'm gonna follow Jesus more deeply today. I'm gonna represent Jesus more deeply today. I'm gonna seek to grow in Jesus through my time in the word, and I'm gonna seek to bear more fruit today. I'm gonna open myself up to opportunities, and maybe because the needs of the whole world are so discouraging and so overwhelming, maybe the simple application is this, that we each just start with one person. Think about what would happen in this church, in this community, if every believer in Jesus said, you know what, I'm going to make it my mission for kingdom fruit to be born in my life by moving one person closer and deeper into relationship with Jesus. So for a lost person, that means you take that person and you share the gospel and you point them towards the gospel and you keep, you keep sharing and you keep speaking and you become the evangelist to the lost. Or maybe your one person is, is already a believer that is hurting, that is struggling, that is beat down and you say, you know what, my mission in life is going to make that person remember how the gospel applies to their hurt today. Remember how Jesus brings hope to them today. And I'm going to seek to bear fruit with my life through engaging in that one hurting person. Or I'm going to go deeper. I'm going to seek to, gain fruit, to bear fruit in my life by just going deeper in my study of the word, deeper in prayer, deeper in living out the, fir- the fruits of the spirit and, and personal character. The needs of the world are overwhelming. There are lots of lost people. There's lots of Christians that are hurting, that are discouraged. And not one of us can help them all. But if each of us start with one and say, that's my mission. That's my mission for today is I'm going to seek to bear fruit and I'm not going to bear fruit by just empty feel-good religion, patting somebody on the back and say, oh, it's okay, Jesus still loves you, but actually presenting the truth of the gospel to say, you know what, you are a sinner that lives in a fallen world and therefore trauma comes, therefore crisis comes and Jesus is the only hope in the midst of it. So let's look at scripture, let's look at the gospel, and let's see how the hope of the gospel applies into the trauma and the crisis that you are experiencing today. If we each start start with one, then we'll start to see that fruit expanded and expand exponentially. So Jesus' promise for us is, in this world you will face trouble. And for today, out of Luke 12 and 13, in this world, you're going to experience division. You're going to struggle with ignorance. You're going to experience the temptation towards needless disputes. You're going to experience personal suffering and crisis. And you're going to go through seasons of fruitlessness. And you're going to wonder, what is Christ doing in me? And the gospel that says we are saved not by what we do, but through what Jesus does, still preaches to each of us 
even those of us that are already following Jesus, the gospel still preaches in clarity to us that you are not loved by God today because of what you did today or what you didn't do today. You are loved by God today because of what Christ did in his life and on the cross in saving you so that you might have new life with him. And the gospel applies to every moment of everyone's life to bring hope and peace in the midst of whatever struggle you are facing. And so as the band comes and we're going to worship together, I'm going to call you to reflection on that, to say what happens if I can If I can, in the midst of the division I'm experiencing, the discouragement I'm experiencing, all of the disputes and the suffering of this life, what happens if I start with one person to love them enough to move them closer to Jesus in evangelism and discipleship so that the kingdom of God might expand through the ministry of God's people? So as they sing, I'd encourage you, stand and sing with us, but also take the posture of worship that the Spirit is leading you to Move forward and come to the altar to pray. Kneel where you are and pray, or just stand and proclaim the goodness of the gospel of Jesus. My hope is found He is my light, my strength, my song This cornerstone, this solid ground Further the fiercest drought and storm What heights of love, what depths of peace When fears are still
body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, in bursting So remain standing in the power of Christ as we pray. Father, this is so true that it is only through your power, only through the revelation of your Son, the incarnation of your Son, where God became a man and then took on the sin that was not his own so that we might receive the righteousness that was not our own and that we might receive a life that we didn't deserve but a life that is promised, a hope that is sure. So Father, may every heart and mind leave encouraged today, encouraged with this gospel hope that we are not right with you based on our own achievements, but that we are right with you based on your own love and your own outpouring of grace for us. And so Father, may we walk as your children and as ambassadors of light in this dark world that you have called us to. And may we always remember the shedding of blood by which we have the ability to stand. And we praise, we praise you, Father, in Christ's name, amen. And now receive the blessing of the Lord from the high priest. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.